You're listening to the Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, here from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. Good to be back with you, Prashant. How are you doing today? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. Doing well. It's good to be back. Uh, we'll have a lot to talk about today, obviously. Um, so some of our listeners, I think, uh, liked our most recent episode where we uh, decided to go on a functional trip to talk a little bit about trade issues in Asia. So I thought that uh, this episode we could devote to the topic of U.S. alliances more broadly, um, sort of taking stock of various issues that are bedeviling American alliances right now in the Asia-Pacific region. So I think the most logical place to start would be with the cost-sharing talks that are now a very hot topic in the U.S.-South Korea alliance. Uh, talk a little bit about what that mean, uh, what that might mean for the eventual cost-sharing talks that the United States and Japan are going to have to do um, by around March 2021 when the existing cost-sharing agreement expires there. Uh, and then we can talk a little bit about uh, the other alliances, including Thailand, the Philippines, and Southeast Asia, and a little bit about Australia, uh, if uh, time permits. But I think, Prashant, this, uh, the, the South Korean alliance uh, is... I think, in a very interesting place right now. Um, this has been an alliance that's gone through its ups and downs uh, over the past couple of years in a remarkable way. The Special Measures Agreement, which is the five-year cost-sharing plan between the two countries, uh, expired last year and was extended by one year because the two sides couldn't actually uh, come to an agreement on a or at least the United States was demanding more than South Korea was willing to pay. And now, with talks progressing towards an eventual five-year extension, the United States is effectively asking for a five-fold increase in what South Korea contributes uh, under under the Special Measures Agreement, moving up to around $5 billion. Uh, and this is sort of something that I think Seoul had seen coming for a long time. Uh, it's obviously no secret that President Donald Trump has made alliances uh, or views alliances in a very different way from all of his predecessors, uh, viewing them essentially as transactional uh, protection rackets uh, where allies pay the United States for protection. Uh, and, you know, these issues aren't just happening in Asia. In uh, Europe, there are similar concerns about the reliability of the United States. But today in uh, Northeast Asia, especially the cornerstone of both South Korea and Japan's national defense strategies is their respective alliances with the United States. So given that alliances are strongest when they're built on a foundation of mutual political interest and a mutual understanding, things don't look too good uh, because both of these countries uh, have their own concerns about um, the security environment in Asia, not just China, but for South Korea, especially the threat from North Korea, which is something that Japan also looks at. Uh, but yeah, I mean, when you look at when you look at these uh, two alliances, Prashant, uh, what's your sense of uh, where things stand right now? Yeah, I, I think it, it's very difficult to to argue against the fact that um, they're they're in a pretty dire situation. So, I mean, th these are alliances that that are decades old, and so you will always have, irrespective of you know what the, what the president himself is doing, President Trump, and and you know the the trends. That we see regionally and globally, there will always be the bureaucratic work of you know alignment management that, that that's going on. Um, you know, you'll have talks, you'll have areas of cooperation, um, but I think definitely when you look at these big issues, burden sharing is one which you mentioned that you know President Trump cares personally about, um, and that's where you're seeing some of the cost sharing uh, mechanisms. You know, having some of these delays and and some of these fissures. Those uh, negotiations, you know, it's important to stress. I mean, it is true that, you know, they are negotiated from time to time and there are differences that need to be negotiated between the United States and these allies. But 
the degree of divergence that we're seeing under the Trump administration is quite unprecedented on these levels. So, you know, that's one issue. But also it's important, as, as you pointed out, um, <clears throat> the, the reason why these alliances are created in the first place is to actually uh, sort of forge a common partnership against perceived threats and challenges. And this is an environment where, um, you know, you, the, the Japan and South Korea both sense a threat from North Korea. Uh, given what they're undergoing. But there's also an ongoing conversation in all these alliances about, you know, if the United States is waging uh, competition, strategic competition with China, what does that mean for its alliances? You know, if, if the United States views China increasingly as a challenge or a threat, to what extent are these uh, allies and other partners willing to uh, to go along with the United States? And I think on both those questions, um, you know, the, the jury's still out, um, but there are a lot of these differences that matter, not only for just, you know, the negotiations themselves, but these big uh, issues that we're talking about. It's also important to mention, I mean, these are alliances, so we are mostly concerned with the security aspect of this, but the other aspect of this that is also has also been, uh, you know, putting these alliances under stress is another thing that President Trump cares about is is, is free trade and, and economic issues, right? The notion that the United States is being taken advantage of. Um, and we've seen, you know, multiple instances where both Japan and South Korea in particular have had to contend with this, right? So President Trump, you know, tried to, and, and we know this publicly, withdraw from the U.S.-South Korea free trade agreement. Um, and that, you know, hasn't happened, fortunately. Uh, but nonetheless, you could perceive what the South Koreans might think when when this occurred. Similarly, um, you know, when the United States withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, it was Japan that was um, actually keeping the ball rolling with CPTPP. So I, I think that's another uh, point of stress for these alliances. Um, and, and I sense it's not going to change as long as President Trump's in office. Yeah. And uh, the question now is, how long will he be in office? Because... Um at least with Japan and South Korea, the implications of a second term of the Trump presidency is, I think, something particularly dire. And of course, it's not just these allies. The Europeans are also thinking about the long-term mm -hmm. health of NATO if uh, Trump were to be reelected, given his uh, sort of dubious commitment uh, to the transatlantic alliance there, too. Uh, but with Japan, for example, the cost-sharing talks look very different if Trump is reelected versus if he isn't. Because March 2021, mm -hmm. if Trump isn't reelected, that will be one of the first agenda items uh, in the U.S.-Japan alliance for a next president of the United States, no matter what. So there, I think, s certain uh, concerns are are quite acute in Tokyo. Um, and, you know, we can recall uh, Trump's visit to Japan earlier this year in the summer for the G20 uh, with, uh, you know, the comments where, where he was standing right beside Abe and saying that, uh, you know, the U.S.-Japan alliance was unfair uh, because of certain obligations. And we also had public reporting from Bloomberg that Trump had been telling his advisors that he'd been thinking about withdrawing from the U.S.-Japan alliance altogether. Mm -hmm. Abe, of course, has decided that the best way to manage Trump and manage the U.S.-Japan alliance is to flatter the American president. That's worked well for him, but it doesn't seem to have changed the fundamentals about Trump's beliefs about the value of alliances more generally. You know, another issue that I think I'd bring up is um, many of our allies in Asia have had to face the issue of American decision-making on various treaties. For example, American withdrawal from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. There were allied consultations before that happened or before the withdrawal was effectuated. But the sense is that, you know, our allies were essentially informed at the very last minute. They had to sort of come on board and support the American decision politically uh, to withdraw. But uh, at least in Japan's case, uh, you know, withdrawing from INF uh, was far from something that Japan was, I think, ready to fully understand the consequences of when when everything happens. So right now, I think we we just had the first report from Kyoto News just a few days ago um, in uh, in early November that uh, 
the U.S.-Japan alliance has begun consultations on post-INF Asia issues, including potentially American missiles de- being deployed to Japan. But these issues, I think, also uh, affect the alliance uh, more broadly. So I think for Japan, I think I think there's a lot of uh, serious questions here, too. For South Korea, I mean, the domestic p- politics of alliance management, I think, are starting to look quite interesting because um, obviously South Korean progressives have been are more critical of the alliance and the value of the mm. alliance than uh, conservatives are generally. But now with the United States asking for what looks like an extortionary amount, $5 billion for a single year, uh, that I think is likely to take the alliance uh, into a direction where both sides of the political spectrum in South Korea uh, oppose uh, or or view the alliance through more skeptical terms. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, that point about domestic politics is important to keep in mind, right? So we talked about domestic politics in the United States, but, um, you know, the fact is that, um, you know, a lot of the challenges uh, and strains that we're talking about in these alliances are happening in spite of uh, the various things that these allies have done, right? So the fact is, in Japan, you've had, uh, you know, Prime Minister Abe essentially preside over a Japan that is increasingly more confident, has played a very strong security role. Um, but that that has actually been a stabilizing force uh, within the Trump administration, as long as Trump is there. But um, if uh, Prime Minister Abe is not in the picture in, the, in a future Japan, that is not necessarily, uh, you know, might uh, going to be the case as much, right? So we really don't know. In the same, in a similar case, I would point out, uh, you know, in the case of Moon, for example, you did see some, uh, you know, convergence of priorities between Moon and, and and Trump with respect to diplomacy on North Korea. But as we've discussed, you know, several times on this podcast already. Um, the divergences are becoming increasingly clear. And, and if you have, uh, you know, Trump going back to fire and fury mode um, and the United States losing patience uh, on diplomacy with North Korea, uh, those fissures could could be there um, again as well, right? It's a similar case with intra-regional dynamics, right? So, you know, you have the U.S. variable here with, with the Trump administration, but it's important to keep in mind, we talked about domestic politics as being one variable, Intra-regional dynamics is another one. You know, you have Japan and South Korea now, you know, in a spat on various issues, including, you know, the, the withdrawal from Jisomia that we talked about on the podcast. So these uh, trends and, and developments are occurring alongside the uncertainty of the United States and questioning of the United States as, as a variable in the region. So, uh, you know, we, we, we should focus on, on, on what's happening uh, under Trump's watch and what's going on with the U.S. variable. Um, but the the rest of the region isn't waiting for the United States to get its act in order. You know, things are happening in the region while these uncertainties are happening as well. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I think I think I think that's absolutely uh, right. But you know, um, uh, to move on a little bit, uh, it's not just Japan and South Korea uh, that we have to talk about on on this episode. Um, but tell us a little bit about the state of. Uh, American alliances in uh, Southeast Asia, specifically uh, the Philippines and Thailand. The Philippines, of course, we discussed on the podcast earlier this year when um, Mike Pompeo delivered new assurances about the scope of the Mutual Defense Treaty, uh, clarifying some long-held ambiguities that um, Manila uh, welcomed effectively. But um, where have things gone since then? Uh, I I think they're pretty much in the same place, um, which is, you know, with respect to both Thailand and the Philippines, what we've seen is a pattern where you know, we've seen uh, an improved trajectory relative to where the Obama administration left off, ironically, because uh, when the Obama administration left office, both Thailand and the Philippines were 
uh, in a, a little bit of a state of flux because Thailand, we had seen that sort of uh, coup in 2014 that led the United States to have to restrict some forms of security assistance. And in the Philippines, we had you know President Duterte come into office and question the entire notion of the alliance. Um, and so when President Trump came into office, actually, the fact that you had uh, President Obama gone had the opportunity for a reset on both of these alliances. And I think the Trump administration, uh, to its credit, has done a, a relatively good job in terms of managing the security aspect uh, of those alliances. So we've seen, as you mentioned, the uh, MDT treaty clarification, which is you know a, a historic development for the U.S.-Philippine alliance in general, right? Historically, so the, so that is uh, a gain. And in Thailand, you've seen an improved trajectory for that relationship too. A lot of uh, defense ties being normalized, um, a lot of arms sales purchases going through. But again, I, I do think it's important to point out, in spite of these occasional gains that the United States has made, the big strategic questions remain unresolved. So if 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 uh, the presumption of the Trump administration is that you know the the big issue is you know rising the U.S. competition with China, the question remains you know where are U.S. allies on this? And in both the cases of Thailand and the Philippines, you're seeing Thailand and the Philippines engage the United States on the security front. But they're also engaging China, sometimes in unprecedented ways. So both Thailand and the Philippines have actually increased security cooperation with China, not just economic collaboration, but also security collaboration. And I'm not so sure even today whether um, you know these two countries would be you know willing to be enlisted in some sort of uh, coalition against China in any way, particularly under this administration. So you're seeing a lot of cooperation on some issues like the South China Sea and, and this notion of the Indo-Pacific in general. But I still think this big question about, you know, what is the major threat and challenge that we're countering and what role these allies are playing, still a big question for both of these Southeast Asian allies. Sure. Yeah, no, that sounds uh, that sounds right. Um, I mean, there's also the other issue, you know, we've been talking about this uh, a lot on the podcast recently, which is the difference between uh, Trump and how Trump perceives various geopolitical issues in Asia versus his administration's strategic documents, including the Indo-Pacific strategy, the national security mm -hmm. strategy, national defense strategy. All of these documents identify alliances as the cornerstone of American strategy for dealing with revisionist great power competition in, in Asia. But of course, then when it comes to Trump, you'll have a very kind of mixed picture where the president personally is primarily obsessed with the trade war with China, obsessed with trade deficits more broadly with many of these partners, including Japan and South Korea. Uh, and by the way, one of the things we didn't actually discuss is the role of now arms sales in sustaining the health of U.S. alliances, especially in Northeast Asia. Both Japan and South Korea have now uh, come under additional pressure to purchase American military equipment, some of which they would have done anyways, but others, it's not so clear that they would have done that. Uh, so that's been an interesting thing where uh, Abe and Moon have now, you know, see this as a way to effectively maintain their, uh, their um, relationship with Trump on a personal level. So there's that. But I mean, the the sort of divergence is interesting, especially at the institutional level, because, you know, we we still have a lot of the good work that goes on in sustaining mm -hmm. the U.S.-Japan and U.S.-Korea alliances at the institutional level. Uh, USFK, USFJ on the Korea side, there have been modifications and cancellations of uh, exercises, especially since the diplomacy with North Korea began in early 2018. Uh, but generally, all of that is still happening. So you are seeing the implementation of some of these um, of some of this strategic guidance from the administration. But that sort of uh, 
inability to reconcile what's happening at the institutional level with what's happening at the leaders level is, I think, very much uh, a source of concern uh, in in many of these capitals. Uh, because at the end of the day, uh, you know, Trump's unpredictability appears to now be increasing as a result of his uh, political uh, doldrums in Washington, D.C. And there's no telling, you know, in an election year, uh, if he decides that um, taking dramatic action with regard to these alliances or holding fast on cost-sharing talks, for example, might be politically astute uh, in in Washington. Um, I don't know. What do you uh, what do you think about that? How is uh, how is the the next year of what's happening in Washington D.C. likely to weigh on American alliances in Asia? I I think it could go one of two ways. I think one scenario is what you suggested, which is you know some governments in the Asia Pacific are adopting this so-called sort of wait and see approach, right, where they can to see you know is the Trump administration going to get another term in office, or are you going to see another administration and effectively a reset in in U.S. policy? Um, but I think you know in some cases of this, we're, we've talked about South Korea and Japan as being two two examples. Um, in an environment where it, it's very politicized and President Trump is running for re-election, some of these uh, issues that he cares about, whether it's free trade or burden sharing, uh, there might actually be an increased inclination on his part uh, to actually push for these issues, uh, not necessarily for a foreign policy uh, perspective, but from a domestic political perspective. And so I think it, the suggestion there would be that you know it, it could actually get a lot worse before it gets better for these countries in, in, in the next year. So that's kind of the worry. I think the other thing that I would just accentuate, you already mentioned this point, but domestic politics as being a variable for these countries is really important. And so one thing to note is that, you know, we, we could sort of debate, um, you know, the, the extent to which we've seen gains under the Trump administration versus some setbacks. Uh, but I think one thing we can't argue against is the fact that across, you know, the public opinion polls, We've seen, you know, a decrease with respect to public perceptions of the United States uh, in all of these alliances. Uh, there's differing degrees to that. In the Philippines, for example, U.S. popularity has always been very high. Uh, but even there, you've seen uh, decreases uh, with respect to what President Trump is saying, but also uh, President Duterte. And so I, I think that's another component of that we've talked about what the president is saying and the institutional dynamics of bureaucracies. But the public opinion damage, um, it's something that could recover perhaps under a different president or over time. Um, but I do worry about that in, in the short term because, you know, the United States is not the only country that has domestic politics. Uh, both Japan, South Korea, all these allies have to navigate that as well. So the more that is publicly said about these things, uh, the tougher it is for these countries to to actually make concessions too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, uh, I think we'll leave it there for today, Prashant. Uh, but yeah, I think um, these are issues that we'll certainly be coming back to uh, sooner rather than later, especially I do want to visit in more detail the cost-sharing talks uh, with South mm -hmm. Korea because those are, I think, um, Tokyo is certainly watching that process very closely as a harbinger for what might await the U.S.-Japan alliance, especially if Trump is reelected to a second term uh, and the uh, special measures agreement with Japan needs to be updated along dramatically different lines. But uh, thanks a lot for joining me. Good beauty. Great. Uh, and for listeners, uh, if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a note or a review on either iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, please do so. It really helps get the word out about the show, and we really do appreciate it. Before we close out the episode, just a quick note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the consulting and analysis division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. 
Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering this region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risk. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.